you know, so much of our worship <clears throat> is who we want to be before the Lord, not necessarily who we are. That's why it's good for us every once in a while to mix in something that we're saying or we're singing with the reminder, like the old hymn would say, that you would come and die for such a worm as I. And so uh, to be reminded of how undeserving we are to even say the name of Jesus Christ, and yet he hears the praises of his people. The scripture that we heard earlier in the Advent candle uh, is really one of the most uh, uh, popular and hopeful passages of scripture announcing the coming of Jesus Christ, the would be uh, earthly king. He was the king of heaven all along. But when he'd come in earthly form, he would be king. And so Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 that we heard from the Lamberts as they were reading is such a familiar passage to us. Um, it's it's included in Handel's Messiah. It's one that we share every single year. We we see it on our greeting cards and all that kind of thing. Um, and, and it is exactly what we think it is. But it came at a time that was a really heavy, very oppressive mood and feeling. In other words, this hopeful message came at just the right time, even though it was 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. This message came at precisely the right time to give hope to God's people because they were going through stuff. I know God's people have gone through stuff in every um, series, in every epic. I know that we are going through stuff now. And if we don't recognize that both personally and sort of universally or globally, God's people are going through stuff. But at the time that this message came, it was uh, just as dark then as it is now. It's, it's different for us because it's a context we live in. They couldn't really relate to the stuff we go through now, nor can we relate to what they were going through at the time. But it's important for us to walk into history just a little bit and figure out where did this message come from? Why was it so important to the hearer? And it's not that I'm trying to make us jump into an Old Testament passage and apply every immediate piece to us and say, like so many preachers do, you know, you go back and you look at the... Um, the promises to the uh, to the the uh, God's people in Israel and and um, all these things. And then a lot of pastors will take those promises and immediately apply them to to today. And we've heard Pastor Bill do um, uh, such deep treaties on the um, prosperity gospel. And a lot of that comes from picking those passages out. So that's not what we're doing this morning. What we're doing is trying to enter into a historical moment to understand that the mood that they were going through is applicable to the mood that we might be going through as well in our 2015 culture. At the time of this announcement, King Ahaz was king over the kingdom of Judah and Israel was, was, was split into two parts. So you had Israel, you had Judah, and King Ahaz, one of the, of the many kings that would come through that territory, um, was one who was not given a really good description from the scriptures. He, he was not praised or promoted as a good king. In fact, his uh, biblical epitaph says in 2 Kings, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. Now, I'm going to... I'm going to speak in parent code for you this morning, and those of you that aren't parents will still understand what I'm trying to accomplish because of um, um, minor listening receptacles on one's cranium or skull or something like that. 
So this is what we do at my house. When there are minor listening devices in the same room, we start using words that they'll never grab. But for some of you, you have some brilliant children, so if they pick this up, that's your fault, not mine. So, um, But anyway, um, that phrase that is in that passage that says, even made his son pass through the fire, is really the defining um, action of how wicked this king was because he had already given his heart to the practices and the customs of other lands. The scripture said right there in that verse that he started adopting the principles and the practices of the people that God had already driven out in order for them to have this land. God intentionally, he wiped them out because of their wicked and evil practices and their sorcery and their consulting those that have passed and all that kind of stuff. And and he said, and Ahaz basically was in a sense saying, okay, Lord, now that you've got them all out of our way and I can rule, some of their customs weren't all that bad. Let's take some of those back. In this phrase, it says he even had his son pass through the fire. If you're an, 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 a mature listener in this, I want you to think about what that really means because there was this God, Molech, who they would offer that kind of sacrifice to. And so you think about the type of sacrifice that happened and what is in the moods and the hearts of the people of that land. It's really no different from you and me. Even though they didn't have Facebook and they didn't have 24-7 cable news, they knew what was going on. And if that is starting to enter the land and their leader is starting to, to practice those kinds of detestable things, they're thinking it's only a matter of time before it hits home for us. And we can all relate to that, right? What seems to start at the top trickles down and eventually becomes the, the rule of the land or it becomes the mood of the land. And so a lot of God's people and a lot of the people that maybe even weren't God's people, but they knew enough of the truth, maybe they knew enough of their history, had a heaviness of heart thinking, what is the future of our children under this wickedness? And even Ahaz made, made his... Made his, uh, his his kingdom even more vulnerable when he started hearing the the uh, proclamations of a coming invasion from Israel and and from Aram and stuff and so so he says I'm going to reach out to the neighboring land I'm going to reach out to the Assyrians who were practicing all of these things and I'm going to make myself basically at their mercy if they promise to protect Judah which really wasn't a stretch for King Ahaz because he was already bought into their lifestyle and their practices. And so now he essentially becomes a puppet of their regime because they're thinking, we got this guy where we, where we want him because he is going to sacrifice all of his freedom in order to be safe. And if you've heard this quote over and over again from, from one of our founding fathers, Benjamin Franklin, I think it applies as much to us today as it did back then where he says, those who would sacrifice liberty for security, deserve neither. And probably even you could extend that phrase and say not only do they not deserve that, fr that freedom or that liberty, but they're not going to enjoy it for long. And so we have that same um, application heavy before us today as our world is falling apart and all these matters of security are taking place. And so I think it's very applicable to, to Ahaz, although he didn't have the wisdom of Benjamin Franklin in his ear. But the idea is that he could have just surrendered his land to the law of the Lord. He could have just done what God had called them to do previously, and he would have enjoyed the security, the strength of the arm of the Lord. Instead, he traded in that freedom or that liberty for what he thought was security, which would only be temporary. 
So without going into any more detail on, on King Ahaz, this is the mood of the people and they're waiting for some hope. The condemnation rings clear just prior to Isaiah chapter 9. In chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, the scripture says, when they say to you, because this is what was going on at the time, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. So if the law of the land, if the rule or the mood or the actions of the land is to consult empty forces, people or things or entities or whatever who have no control, no power, no reign, and yet that's who they want to hear from, those people have no dawn. So you can imagine how happy of an environment that was to live in. Verse 21, they'll pass through the land hard-pressed and famished and it will turn out that when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they'll look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into the darkness. This is what's going on just prior to what I picture almost like God reaching down his hand and putting his hand under the chin of this precious little girl, this little child, looking at Israel like his daughter, and he, and he begins, uh, Isaiah begins in chapter 9 with this verse. He says, but there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. You almost picture him lifting her chin. Yes, in earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, listen to the familiarity of this passage, Galilee of the Gentiles. Where is his hope coming? It's going to pass through Galilee. Of course, we know that's where Jesus came through to continue to perform his work. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod on, of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Yes, but you don't know what happens to the children in our land. How can you make this promise? Because our children don't always have a future. This one does. He says, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on. And forevermore, the burning passion, the raging jealousy of the Lord, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The scriptures have given us four titles, four names, four pillars of Jesus' authority, his rule in this passage. And just this morning, we're going to take a look at one of them. But as we think about how these names are given, names in scripture are never given lightly. 
It seems as though every name in, in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, when Jesus changes the names of some of his disciples, it's with meaning, it's with great purpose, because the language lends itself to knowing what this name stands for. You and I don't necessarily name our children that way. Now, I know someone's going to come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I'm offended, I picked out the name of my child by the meaning. That is true that some do that. But not all do. In general, we like the ring or the tone of how it rhymes with our last or how it flows with our last name. Or we name and have somebody in our family lineage that was very meaningful to us or something along those lines. Or if you run into my case, you just try to use a name that hasn't been used yet. So there are those decisions we make as we think about naming our children. So, for instance, you're not going to. And I, I, I caution those of you that name your children after biblical names. Some of them are beautiful and very appropriate. But I caution you, you know, these were a lot of names given in a Hebrew culture that don't necessarily ring so well, and that child has to carry that name for the rest of their life. So if you're thinking about using the name Jehoshaphat, for instance, anybody in here named Jehoshaphat? I just want to make sure I don't offend, especially you little ones. If your name is Jehoshaphat, it's it's probably not the right biblical choice because it's not going to sound all that great in an American culture. And so you don't want to make the kid carry that burden. If you need um, some assistance, I will pay the legal fees to have your name changed or something. I just believe that strongly in that kind of thing. Um, however, if you are trying to make the point that uh, that God is judging his people or God is judging his land, you want to use the meaning of the name Jehoshaphat, then maybe that's the appropriate name for that. Um, and sometimes... Uh, some of you, after having your child for like six months, would like to rename your child Jehoshaphat because God is judging you in the moment. That is a possibility. So, all right. So, but when we're given names, we ha- in the scriptures we have to pause and we have to think what is the big deal about these names. It's interesting that as we are establishing in the scriptures from Isaiah's prophecy the reign, the rule of King Jesus coming the Christ, that these four pillars would be mentioned, that that this idea of him being a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the eternal father and prince of peace, those are the four that he would reign on. There's certainly other ones they could have chosen, but because of the authority and the moving of the Holy Spirit, that's what Isaiah penned for us. So just looking at the very first one, it's, it's, it's cool to see, too, what the precursor of each of these words or the, the reason why wonderful is atta- attached to counsel, why is mighty attached to God, and so on and so forth. And in our, in our stopping along wonderful counsel this morning, I just want us to think about wonderful for us usually means something that's extraordinary, something that's beyond good, something that is excellent or it's praiseworthy. We, it's not that we throw out wonderful lightly. When we think of something wonderful, we think more than just, yeah, it's pretty good. But even in scriptural terms, and what was establishing the authority of Jesus was something that was better than just more than good, something that was extraordinary. In fact, wonderful was used in another uh, passage of scripture in Psalm 78:12, where it says he did miracles. That same word miracles was, comes from the same um, uh, Hebrew word that's translated as wonderful. So now we automatically have an understanding that when we're talking about wonderful and miracles that he did in the sight of their ancestors, we're talking about something much more profound than just he's going to be a really good counselor. And often we fall into that trap, but this is what is is known as just being beyond human ability or understanding. This is a powerful demonstration when it comes to Jesus is going to be the capital, you know, just make that all caps for the 
counselor, the chiefest of counselors. Why? Because it is him. Remember last week when we were talking about John 1, 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word, everything we know about language, everything we have understand about the spoken or written Word, was God. The two are synonymous. And the same is happening here with Counselor. Because Jesus is uh, synonymous with counsel, with wisdom, then we have to understand that he is going to do it his way. And his way is always beyond our understanding. That's how he did everything. As we see the life of Jesus in the three plus years that he walked on this earth, we understand that the way he lived life and demonstrated life was his way and his way alone. He brought the dead back to life while others were watching. Only he was going to do that. The way he would demonstrate love or the way he would teach the way he would perform miracles or show his compassion to those that were lost or wayward or poor. He would demonstrate mercy, grace, and forgiveness to the sinner. And even as he walked and marched towards the cross and laid his life down, those things Jesus did not as the one who was more talented than us, not as the one who did it that well just because he had a direct line with God. He did it that way because he was all of those things. Jesus is the epitome and the very essence of life. He is the very essence of love and compassion, forgiveness and mercy and all those things. So in the same way, we come to this and we understand that he is a wonderful counselor, but he is not just a very talented, skilled advisor. Jesus is so much more than that. He is miraculous at it. When we think of counsel, so often we think of the person who, you know, allows you to kind of stretch out on their leather sofa and the person sits there and it's a little bit more of a therapeutic, a good listening ear. And at times that that maybe that helpful advice or that wisdom is interjected and stuff. And so it's it's really pretty much uh, set up to be what do you need from me and how can I help you? And that counsel is what we in our modern context expect to happen. But it's part of that. But it's also a bigger part of that, which I think we could probably relate to better if we understand um, heads of state or if we understand our, our presidential um, situation where we start to tune in to the candidates that are running for office, even more so when they start announcing who their, who their running mate's going to be. So, so particular, a person in a party gets the nomination from their party and then it's on them to then tell the country, this is who I plan to run with. And unfortunately, what's happened, if I can just make some political commentary, what happens so often is they will pick a running mate who will represent a voting block that they're trying to get. So if he's a governor or a senator from a particular state or area, they might go for that person based on the votes that they can help them with in the general election. But you guys know this. Unfortunately, it has moved oftentimes away from this person is a sound person of wisdom and experience and skill who will aid my cabinet, will aid my my administration. And then we also try to pay attention to who are you going to have on your cabinet? What types of people are you going to have around you? Why? Because we understand, as our parents have always taught us, that you are who you hang out with. And so if you want to see the tone or the tenure of the way a leader is going to go, find out who his friends are. Find out who her influences are. Find out where those those uh, theories of, of action are coming from. Find out where they get their examples of practice and how to live their life. And so this is a very important step to know who are your advisors. But human advisors can never be fully trusted because even in the best of situations, even in our best relationships, 
We are human, which means we have an inherent bent, an inherent brokenness inside of us. That means even if I think I mean well to advise you and guide you in the areas of your life, chances are I'm going to have a selfish perspective in the way I'm going. Maybe there's something I get out of this. You know, maybe as I'm helping you, even though you're my friend or you've come to me for advice, I'm going to help you. But maybe I just had one of those days where I'm like, you know, I'm not feeling very loved or appreciated. I'm going to say the things to you that you're going to turn around and say, that was so helpful. Thank you. And that might cloud my judgment as to what you really need to hear as an example. That's the way that advice or counsel between between mankind can be broken down. And so as Jesus is the wonderful counselor, he's a standard above all of that. Why? Because he is counsel. Because he is truth. Remember, we understood from John 14, 6, that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, will caps that as well, the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. No man comes to the Father from salvation or for salvation but through him, as well as no man achieves the wisdom of God but through Christ. And so if we were asking for a bit of a window into the administration of the coming king, um, you know, Isaiah, tell us a little bit about how he's going to reign. We can jump a couple chapters over. Because Isaiah 11 starts to spell it out for us. When we're watching the elections, right, we start going, well, I wonder what their real plan is on taxes. I wonder what they're going to do about national security. And it's on the candidate to eventually start rolling out some specifics, right? And the soundbite culture doesn't lend itself to really telling us what that person's going to do. So they have to start putting a plan in place. And they start advertising that plan. And so Isaiah 11 is sort of like the rolling out of this plan. It's not full of all the specifics. That's what the rest of the Bible is for, as we'll discover in a few minutes. But it gives us the highlights here and gives us the tone for this administration, if I could put it sort of in our earthly terms for a minute. In chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breadth of his lips, he will slay the wicked. All righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And to that we would say in our country today, wouldn't that be amazing if that's the kind of leadership we had? We know we're not going to have that in earthly settings anytime soon. And I don't care what party our candidate is coming from. This is a description that belongs to Jesus Christ Alone, But could you imagine the fairness that comes out of that? Could you imagine the authority that comes out of that? Could you imagine the decision making and the wisdom in all of those things that we are so sorely missing in our culture today? Can you start to understand the tone and the mood that Isaiah's uh, hope and encouragement enters into to where they start going, you mean really there's hope for this? This kind of thing can really be available to us? It's been so long since we've seen that put into action. And Jesus' rule will take action. So no, we're not 
going to, under Jesus' rule, be given to uh, therapeutic expressions where he's just going to say, that's good for you, just let it all out. You just say what you need to say. He's not going to lead us to a path of self-discovery which says, let me help you find the innermost you and be true to that. He's not going to just offer you guidance based on your own receptivity to it. He's not going to just tell you the things that you want to hear so that he has that close friendship with you because he's wise enough to know that just allowing you to express yourself or allowing you to find the inner workings of your heart or just to allow you to to hear the things that will make you feel good in the moment is not being wise, is not giving true counsel, is not helping you through the circumstances of life. Jesus' authority and his availability to us is deeper than all of those things. Now, for you and for me, right now, I could watch him make a liar out of me and say, right now he's not coming back this instant. It would be awesome if I was totally wrong on that. And the, but the scripture says that while he goes away, he sends another person to us, another person of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and he sends the Holy Spirit to us who will move in and comfort us and guide us in all things. And the Holy Spirit has, uh, has, has moved to guide us through the Word, capital W, is given to us in the form of a pen, the words of Jesus Christ. The words of the Lord from beginning to end. Hebrews 4 tells us, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So like the listeners back in Isaiah's day, we have to understand that what Hebrews is offering to us is a living word, more than just something that gives us our daily inspiration, more than just something that gives us our, our kind of goal to attend to uh, or to, to intend to live by. But the word in us lives. Something in us lives. It also has life. It starts to get active. It takes control of the members. It starts popping up in the strangest situations. It starts flooding our thoughts when we least expected it. Why? Because the word that we're taking in is alive and we're ingesting it into our system. It comes to life and it starts kind of coming out through our members. It comes out of our tongue. It floods our thoughts. It protects our ears. It does all those kinds of things. Because the Holy Spirit is alive in us through the power of the Word. And because Jesus said He would send that Comforter, one who would illumine truth to us, when we come to the Word of Scriptures, we see the life that is in it. And it begins to change our lives completely. It's an effective Word. It's sharp. It's able to cut through. It's able to get the job done. And it is the only thing that is accurately uh, uh, able to... Um, judge the thoughts, the motives, or what the scriptures would call the intents of our heart. What, think about that. What else can we really trust to be true to us? To be honest with what we're really thinking. I was just hearing, um, this isn't in my notes, so this could be totally blow up in my face for an analogy, but I was just hearing a singer talk about, you guys all probably have heard of Adele. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but uh, I was just hearing Adele in an interview and she had said that what took her so long to come up with a, a new album is is that um, she uh, had all these songs and her guru producer type, you know, the person that just kind of adds their magic to this is the tone you want to take. And all of a sudden it sells millions of albums. So she went to her, you know, guru person with all these songs. And he says, no, I just don't believe you're singing that. I don't believe you when you sing these words. It's not true to you. So we're going to scrap all that work and we're going to rewrite stuff. And now they're like, I believe you're singing this. And I heard this week it like did three million albums in a, in a day or something ridiculous or whatever. 
And so whatever they're tapped into, I don't know. But the point is, is that there's an honesty that we sorely lack, right? And that we have people that try to tell us what's true or what's genuine or whatever. And sometimes they make them hit the mark and sometimes they don't. But the scriptures are the only reliable source of truth that are always going to be honest with what we're thinking at the time. Have you noticed that the more you're taking in the word of God, the more you realize how much you need it? Didn't we think that as we grew in our walk with Christ, as we got closer to him, that a lot of these things would get easier, that we would have a, a maybe a different kind of appreciation for the gospel because it, it, it fits us better? <laughs> and instead, what we find is the closer we get to the Lord, wow, my heart is blacker and blacker in the inner depths of it than I ever realized. The gospel continues to reach down and redeem and renew parts of my heart that I didn't even realize were that flawed or broken. So, those of you that are new to the faith, enjoy that. We get our best counsel from the Bible. I've got a few more minutes here, so I I hope this doesn't sound like a departure, but as we're talking about the Word, the capital W Word, alive in us, speaking to us through the words of Scripture, the written language that's been translated for us, as the Bible is alive in our lives, we have to have some caution about how we approach the Word of God. It's one of our, our pillars here at Faith that are, one of our utmost desires is to be faithful to the Word of God. It is our utmost desire to be faithful to the Word of God and to see that God's people apply the Word of God to daily life because we believe with every fiber in our being that it is completely relevant for the day that we live in. And while all the headlines say it's not and it's passe and everything, all the people that work so hard to prove that point or make that case end up more and more wayward and we continue to be anchored in the truth, able to live out what the, what the Bible is telling us to do. So, uh, for that reason though, I want to give, um, an author that I've appreciated. He wrote a book called Crosstalk. It's one that we've used in counseling training and stuff, but, um, he wrote that book, uh, Michael Emlett, and he just breaks down in one of his chapters a few warnings of how not to approach the Bible, and I found them very informative. So I'm just going to give you his highlights. And not all of the quotes in there, but I am going to quote him as he gets on the positive side of saying this is what the Bible really is. He's making a big point in a couple chapters that I'm going to try to boil down. And so um, if you're lost on that, um, I would totally recommend you getting a book called Crosstalk by Michael Emlett if you're uh, into that whole, I don't know, knowing more about your Bible kind of thing. All right. So um, Michael Emlett says that uh, the Bible... is not primarily a book of do's and don'ts. I don't know if you've ever fallen into that trap before, but so often it's easy for us to look at the uh, instruction of Scripture as what do I need to do today? What do I need to avoid today? What do I need to make sure I don't do? This puts a frown on God's face and this puts a smile on God's face. I want to avoid the frowns and I want to pursue the smiles. That does become a regular part of our Christian experience. It becomes a regular part of our discipleship as we're, as we're seeing the scripture because clearly obedience is a very important key in the scriptures. And obedience was never meant to save us, but it was demonstrated for centuries in the Old Testament of how short we come even under uh, the, uh, because it's, it's impossible to have perfect obedience. So we come short as demonstrated through the Old Testament. So we still obey as demonstrated in the New Testament, but knowing that it's going to fall short, we have the grace of Jesus Christ who became perfect obedience for us. So we don't approach the scripture as a bunch of do's and don'ts because what ends up happening is you and I get really funny about this. We start picking the things that we like to do 
and we avoid the things we don't like to do. Or we start to value so much the do list and we feel like we're nailing it, knocking it out of the park, that the other people that aren't doing the do list, we start to look down our nose and say, how come you're not doing it as good as me? In, in our church circles and stuff, we refer to that as a little bit of a loose uh, application of it. But we refer to it as legalism. That becomes the whole thing of what can I do to impress God? And then I'll notice how much you're not doing to try to impress God. And I'll point that out in your life. You can trust me. I'll, I'll never fail on that promise. And so that happens. That's one of the reasons why we can't just simply approach the scriptures as a bunch of do's and don'ts, though the do's and don'ts are in there that we need to study and obey. I'll hope to make more sense of that in a second. It's not primarily a book of timeless principles for the problems of life. Even though the Bible tells us how to handle issues like worry and fear and temptation and money and speaking and all of these things, the scripture does give us these principles to solve the problems of life. If we treat it as simply that encyclopedia, when we're going through a moment of worry, we're going through a moment of fear, and that's what brings us back to the word. And we go to Matthew 6 and we say, okay, I'm not supposed to worry about this or that. I'm supposed to give these things over to eternal treasures and all that kind of stuff. If we're only consulting the scriptures from that standpoint, then we're missing sort of the bigger picture of what happens because the Bible is full of examples of when that doesn't work. And when it doesn't work in our life because we're imperfect and we can't obey it perfectly, what do we lean on? What do we draw on? Do we just pitch the scriptures? Do we pitch God? We we tried that. It didn't work. So often we do. So we can't approach the scriptures primarily as a book of timeless principles. And we can't approach the scriptures primarily as a casebook of characters to imitate or avoid. We don't just come to the scriptures because we understand that Joseph was a good example of trusting in, trusting in the Lord or that Ruth was a great example of, of, of making her life available even though she was freaked out and all of these kinds of things. There are characters and stories to emulate. Even the scriptures point us to certain characters and say, don't do like Cain did. Instead, do like this person did and everything. So the Bible is telling us to do that. But the point that the author's making is don't primarily make it about that case study of just the lives of people. I'm going to do life like that person and like that person. And why is that? Michael Emlett continues and he says this. He says, the Bible in its story form or narrative structure, this is sort of the totality of it all, is the means that God uses to make himself known. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, we talk about it all the time here at Faith, but he's emphasizing the reason why. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you realize that it narrates or that it proclaims a true and cohesive story. The good news that through Jesus Christ, God has entered history to liberate and renew the world from its bondage to sin and suffering. This is the story of God who pursues the restoration of his creation at the cost of his own life. He's making all things new. That's the simple and yet profound life and world altering plot line of the Bible. And so he's putting this very eloquently. But what I appreciate about this is that we've tried to explain over the years that when you take the scriptures and you read from cover to cover uh, throughout time, you start to see the whole piece of 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 the of the story that god has put together we start to see that god from the very beginning had a plan that is just playing out and that he's faithful to see it through and why is it important for us to see that big context because you and i live in the moment you and i humanly speaking see exactly what our problem is for today 
And we might have devotional structures that give us a thought or a word of the day and everything, and that's great, and we use that and we chew on that. But if we don't do um, our understanding of God's story in the greater context, we start to lose hope that somehow our efforts count. Somehow our God's going to come through for us when our situation is bleak. You start seeing God come through in all of history. You start seeing God explain this is what happens if you don't obey. You start seeing that God uses certain people to do extraordinary things and then he uses people that had all the potential in the world and they failed and so they fell flat on their face. You see all of these things put together and you say, now I understand who the author of the work is. Now I start to understand what his intent was in giving us this written word. Now I'm starting to know who the word, capital W, is. This is where we get our wonderful counsel from. Jesus is more than just a good advisor. If Jesus is really the very definition of truth, if he really is wonderful and that he does incomprehensible and miraculous works, then why do you and I look elsewhere for guidance on the issues of our lives? That doesn't mean to say that you can't get help from a lot of different places, but what is it founded in? Because if it's not founded in the essence of the understanding of who man really is, which is a totally depraved, lost sinner before a loving, holy God, then where is your advice or your counsel or your guidance of life coming from? Going back to that picture of a team of advisors and those people that sit around the table to tell the leader what, what they need to hear to make an informed decision. Are you looking around because you don't think that you're hearing the truth? Maybe you haven't tested the Lord's truth to see if he's going to come through. Maybe that's where you're at and you need to give it more time. You need to obey him. You need to step out in faith and see how he comes through. Or is it that you don't like the truth that you're hearing? And so because you have a lot of different resources you can go to, you're going to keep going down the, around the room until you hear someone who's going to tell you something you finally can stomach, something that you can deal with. Because that's the wrong way to approach the wonderful counselor. How does the arrival of the wonderful counselor refresh you today? Because that is what this message was intended to bring in Isaiah. It was a message of refreshment, of hope, of forward-looking. What drought of hope have you been thirsty under that can be washed away by the truth of his word? Let's not make this overcomplicated. If you and I were severely dehydrated and there was this well about a 100 feet away and we knew that the water was there, we just didn't know how we were going to get it, we'd have all sorts of ideas, all sorts of creative ways that we would draw the water that we need because we're so thirsty. So maybe we have to understand that the reason why we're not uh, seeking that water and we're not just chasing it down with every fiber in our being is because we haven't determined that we're really that thirsty. Maybe we haven't figured out how much we need it. I'm going to ask one of our elders, uh, Dick Bradstreet, to make his way up and just make a couple more thoughts here. The word of God is made available to each of us. And only our thirst for it will determine the weight of guidance that it will have in our lives. Like the children of Israel, we are in dark times today. Our kings, in quotes, seek the advice of the wicked and we're hopeless year after year. The promise of Isaiah applies to us, uh, applies to us today. Because we're part of the same story of God's redemption. He's brought light to his children, the light of the world who is truth. So we must do what we must in order to take in more of that light today. Remember that picture from last week of the frog taking in that light bulb? And I'm sorry for that disturbing image. I've heard a lot of 
weird uh, application to that in a week, but I guess that's what I asked for, for presenting such a strange image. But that is the idea. Lord, how much more of your light can we take in that it will infect every area of our being? So thank you very much for your attention. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.